Acts chapter 10, verses 23 through 48. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I send for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation everyone who fears him and does what is right acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witness of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Then put, him, then put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers with, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for, baptiz for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of God. Nearly all of us carry a camera with us. Now, it's usually built into our phone, but most of us have it with us, so when people start to sing happy birthday, or when you bump into that friend, or uh, when you uh, get to the top of the mountain that you've been climbing, whatever the situation is, you can easily just access your phone and capture that moment. Now, the question is, when you do that, do you normally take a picture 
or do you take video? It's interesting the technologies you can do either. And it's, it's interesting to me to raise the question, why would you ever take a picture when you can take video? Because with a picture you have to be so precise. A video is more forgiving. A video includes things that photographs don't include. Um, sounds, motion, it's much more forgiving. It seems like you would typically want to capture video. Well, certainly in some places, uh, some occasions. But actually, a well-taken photograph can capture emotion, a mood, feeling, and allow your imagination to think about it. And a really good photograph is superior to a mediocre video where you're watching for 45 seconds and they keep saying, wait for it. And you just think, if I had that one good photo to engage, um, a photograph actually could be better in some situations. Baptism is kind of like a photograph. So in May and June, we're talking about five core practices at Emmanuel. Uh, every church does them in some way. We just define them with clarity to make sure that we don't stray away from the basics. And one of those five is sacraments. And there are two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Today we're going to talk about baptism, next week the Lord's Supper. Uh, but baptism is unique of all of the practices, reading the Bible, prayer, fellowship, mission, because it happens once. We say we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it happens once per person. <laughs> There's an ongoing practice in the church, and so hopefully if you're a part of a church, you'll, you see baptisms with some regularity. Since September, we've had about six and so we don't do baptism once, but each individual is baptized once. And that means in our own experience, it's different than reading the Bible, which you should do frequently. We're praying. We're told pray without ceasing. But baptism is kind of a picture. And it's unique in that sense. And, and that uniqueness, for some of you, may have you feeling, how is it relevant? <laughs> um, because it happened, and I may not even remember it. But actually, if you understand how it is a picture of that creates an opportunity for us to appreciate what being baptized can mean and offer in the Christian life. So today, as we look at the picture of what baptism is, I'm not going to say everything about baptism, but I want to draw out three elements of that picture, which is that we get a defined community, a cleansed body, and a spiritually alive people. Those are all parts of that picture. And so I'm going to begin by talking about a defined community. After all, baptism, uh, we sometimes use the phrase, it's the entrance into the visible church. There's an invisible reality that God sees, but we're not God. But we, what we see is human beings showing up, and baptism is a way of bringing people. It's a sign of coming into the community. Now, the passage that we're looking at is actually... Um, a very important passage. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, there are all sorts of incidents where Peter or Paul or Philip or any of these others meets an individual and has, has a meaningful interaction. But Peter and Cornelius, this is not just one more story. It's a, it's a particularly significant story in the flow of the book of Acts and in the fulfillment of God's plan. And what I mean by that 
is you can see even from the story, so before what we've read and after what we've read, Peter has a vision and Cornelius has a vision. And so their coming together is not coincidental, but, but orchestrated by God in some meaningful way where we get the details of the visions. And then the next chapter, Peter returns to Jerusalem and he recounts for them the whole story. The story is that important. It may seem redundant as a reader that you come across, we just read it. Why is it here? It's here because it's important. And the importance of it is this is the first moment where, where the gospel is being received with the Holy Spirit, with the, with the fullness among the nations. So the word used in Judaism, Gentile, referring to the nations. In the, in the opening of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you've received power from on high. That's going to be the Holy Spirit coming in Acts 2. So in Acts 2, the Spirit comes upon those in Jerusalem and Judea. But then in Acts 1.8 it says, you'll, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So then in Acts 8, I believe it is, the Spirit comes and upon Samaritans and they believe. Now in this chapter, the Gospel is preached, the Spirit comes with all of the signs, just like the day of Pentecost, upon Cornelius, a Gentile. And, and in the next chapter, you can see from Peter's speech, this is a significant moment. And even within this passage, we can see that, that they did not understand the fullness of God's plan. Even though the promise to Abraham that the descendants of Abraham would bless the nations, fulfilled in Jesus, they didn't really understand in what ways the nations would be blessed, that they would be brought in. So I'm using the language of a, def of, of a defined community because uh, Peter was a member of a defined community, uh, the first century Jewish community. So in verse 28, uh, Peter says to, the, to, to those who are listening, he says, you yourselves know it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So common. Uh, there's the ordinary humanity, but there's a special people set apart, made holy by God's promise, by God's blessing. And now he realizes actually the lines that we have that divide nation and race and language. God is going to transcend those boundaries. So in verse 45 it says, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, even on the Gentiles. That's really what this passage is about. They, Peter couldn't imagine it, that the gift of the Spirit would be poured out, that the blessing was not simply that we would be nice to the Gentiles, but they would come into the community. And, and so there's a transformation that the sign that set them apart was circumcision. That was the promise to Abraham. And if you read in the New Testament in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And yet there was a sign of God's promise, circumcision, a sign of Abraham's faith, you might say, but also a sign that was applied to his descendants, his offspring. Circumcision is a bit of a peculiar sign. I'm grateful that our membership class does not require circumcision or the church would be significantly smaller. So there's at least two aspects of circumcision. One is shedding blood, cutting skin. It's a bloody, painful sign. 
but it's also a sign about descendants and offspring. It's interesting that it has to do with the male reproductive organ because the calling of Abraham is now about within the whole world watching this one family and within that family tracing certain descendants until Jesus comes from that family, himself circumcised, himself who would have his blood shed, until the fulfillment of these things and the transformation. So Jesus did not have children. You don't follow a genealogy after him. And we don't circumcise now, but, but circumcision, uh, the promise and the sign of God's promise is transformed into something that brings out the newness of the new covenant, baptism. You could see that uh, connection if you read Colossians 2, for example. And yet the story is a distinctly Jewish story. In verse 36, as Peter recounts for them, he says, as for the word he sent to Israel, and so the message doesn't change. The invitation is come in, study the Bible, understand what God has done from the beginning of humanity and how he called this one people. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of it. And now from this person, we in real time are finding out God is doing something even more than we understood, that what he did through this people is now to invite others in. And so it's no longer about being circumcised. Read the book of Acts. This becomes a big issue. Read the book of Galatians. But it's actually from the circumcised community that now God creates this new spirit family where the new sign is baptism. And so in verse 48, at the end of this, it says he commanded them, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's that new name, the name that fulfilled the promises to Abraham, brought through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, uh, all the way coming to the one who is named as the descendant, Jesus Christ. And you, we're told that in his name, when you are brought into him, you are now um, joining with God's people. He fulfilled the calling of the nation. And whether or not you've been part of that nation, you're invited into Christ. And so there's a new name. And with that name, a whole new world, a whole new understanding, a new identity, new values, new goals. And everyone is invited in, and the entry sign of God's promise and grace is baptism. And so let me say two quick things here. One is that baptism is, is meant to be a, a somewhat public event for the church because it, it signifies coming into this community, which is why we don't baptize um, personally or individually outside of exceptional circumstances, you know, sort of the deathbed baptism or something. And by saying in the church, what's ordinarily, where it normally happens is within the walls of the church. That doesn't mean if your church is at a retreat, you can't be baptized in the lake. But I'm talking about God's assembled people. It's not just about me and what I want and what I do, but it's about a community where baptism is a sign of people being brought in and welcomed. It's a sign of his promise fulfilled through Christ that everyone is called to believe. And so the second thing I just want to pause and say at this moment is baptism then signifies um, something new. Being baptized into the name, uh, the Christian who is baptized has a new identity. And, and it takes a lifelong to work that out. What does it mean to relearn who I am, um, how I understand the world? But that is where the church is meant to uh, encourage one another. Let's understand that if we are now in Christ, part of his community, we're redefined that that has radical implications. And so for instance, in Colossians 2, where it talks about uh, a circumcision of the heart, that's the new covenant, Colossians, and the sign of baptism connected to it, Colossians 3 says, therefore put off the old way 
and put on the new way. So baptism is a one-time sign, but it's a sign that's meant to work itself out in the course of our lives as we, as we realized in the name of Christ, I have a whole new understanding, a whole new hope. So the second thing I want to talk about is a cleansed body. So here I'm talking about us as individuals receiving the sign, but I'm continuing the theme because if baptism is into the name of Christ, the church is his body. And so the community is a cleansed body. But I want to say just a few things about baptism as a cleansing sign, washing the body. Water, that's how you baptize. We baptize with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, if that happens, it's valid, even if it should be by an ordained minister, and it's not, or whatever exceptions people make. But if you were baptized with sand, you haven't been baptized. So we would use water. Water is the sign given to us. And it's, important, it's an important sign. Water is needed in the body. Human beings are roughly 60% water. But water is needed outside of the body to clean us. And therefore a sign um, about uh, entry into a new body and the cleansing of the body you have is significant. And so in verse 28, Peter talking to them says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, unclean is not just about dirt as we think of it, but it, it's a way of categorizing these boundaries um, and certain limitations God has uh, for his own people. That's a, a broader subject, but it's relevant here in terms of the sign that Peter is realizing, I thought these people were unclean and yet God's spirit has worked among them. So they're now part of this new community and therefore baptism does become uh, important in this. So, so the concept of unclean, that's a religious term. Uh, certainly within uh, the Bible and Judaism, it, it's a term that's there. There are other expressions of how people are, are getting at similar concepts th these days. So for instance, there's a, a number of psychologists that are looking at what they describe as disgust and raising a question of, of that instinct of disgust. What are the what are the implications for humans as they perceive of morality and politics and, and how does that inform uh, how we understand things? Now, disgust and unclean are not exactly the same, but one of the areas that disgust is felt in, is with food. So for example, if you open a box of cereal and pour your cereal into your bowl and you see a number of bugs, now some of you will be like, protein, and then you'll eat it. Some of you will never eat cereal again. Uh, but in the middle, uh, there might be some of you who just throw it out. Um, some of us trying to recoup our losses who might scoop out where we see the bugs and think that we could eat the rest, but myself and my frugality would aim to salvage as much of the cereal as possible. But I also know myself that I would sit down and the whole time I'd be thinking of, did I miss anything? And so that, that instinct of discomfort to say, I think I could keep eating this, but, but now I've had something that's made me not want to. Something about a little bit of a disgust instinct there. Um, there's something about human beings. So all of us know we're not perfect. And most of us can easily say that. But there's something about not knowing or knowing that you're not perfect that then shapes us because it's kind of like you see a few bugs in your cereal and then you start to wonder about the whole box. You know that you're not perfect, but, 
But as much as you tell yourself that that's okay because nobody's perfect, there is a way that we're affected. There's this sense in which being imperfect means that nothing is okay, nothing is safe. And that actually shapes how we think of ourselves, how we think of our world, but also how we think of God. Because so often what we think of is there's something wrong with God. I don't want to serve that kind of God. I don't like that God. That God's too judgmental or too punishing. And what we're really doing is grappling with with a, a distorted view of God that comes from our own fear, <laughs> that if God is holy and God can see me as I am, then he's going to throw the whole thing out. And so there's a human instinct that is complicated, but, but there's something in all of us that says, uh, God is not safe. <laughs> I need some way of getting near him, but not too close, uh, because we fear the implications. Um, the gospel message that's announced in verse 36, Peter talks about preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. So there again, the announcement of peace is announced to all categories of people. And those of you that are not at peace because you know that there's something wrong that you can't fix, you can't name, you can't put your finger on it, the gospel message comes and says, but God announces peace that's actually helpful, right? You don't want to draw near, you're afraid, but he says, but, but God is not as you fathom or conceive of him, but he's a God who brings peace. Um, but then this sign of baptism helps us understand uh, the nature of God's peace. You know, in, in New York City, most of us don't have what's sometimes called the mud room, uh, but people with bigger houses, uh, and I imagine, especially on a farm, you need that transitional place if you're sort of out with your boots in the mud and in the dirt. But in suburban homes, my understanding is uh, there's a room that you call the mud room, and it's kind of, even if you um, weren't literally playing in the mud, it's the place where you could take off your shoes, you know, whatever the case is, and it's a transition into the house. Now, once you're in the house, you still need to wash your hands before you eat and cover your mouth when you sneeze and take a shower. Um, but there's something transitional there. I think there's something similar to say we come into the church through baptism. There's a sign of taking everything off. That doesn't mean when you're in the church that you don't need to, to um, morally reform. You don't need to grow. You don't need to change. But it's that entryway in that's, that we shouldn't miss to say you can't come into the church as you are. And there's nothing you can do for yourself. But God is going to have to do something for you. What's signified in baptism communicates that to us. So in verses 37 and 38, it says, as Peter recounts the story of Israel, he says, beginning with the baptism that John proclaimed, so John the Baptist was a prophet, beginning with the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So if you go back to the Gospels, there's John wondering, why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Because baptism is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of God's people who strayed and are unclean and are called to return, but they need some initiatory right to signify that they're ready to come back. Why is Jesus being baptized? Well, here it says, to anoint him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And so he didn't need a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but he identified with sinners and therefore, he is anointed. This was uh, setting him apart in some special way. Uh, so then he, Peter ends that portion in verse 43, saying to him, being Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
So all of the prophets up until John were very aware people had a problem with sin and we need some sign that readies us. But Jesus being baptized uh, on our behalf to identify with us was a sign that God was going to do something more profound. You know, it's easy to, to have it become common to say Christianity is a message about forgiveness. And, and sometimes we could do these complicated things to not face and deal with what's going on that forgiveness doesn't sound relevant. But it's that, that thing that never goes away that says I, I don't feel good enough or I'm not confident or I don't, I don't feel comfortable with who I am and I certainly would not want people to see me in the way that I see myself. The announcement of forgiveness says not only does God announce peace but, but he makes peace possible by doing something to make it so that you uh, can come near to him. You could have a place among his people and he makes forgiveness possible. And there's a sign that says maybe you are unclean, but you could come in among his people and what he has done will clean you. And so in verse 47, Peter's question, can anyone withhold water? So he's announced the good news, the spiritual reality. It's not that the outward sign on its own saves you apart from grace or faith. But we need that outward sign to picture that God has fulfilled his plans and purposes and he invites us in and we're not ready as we are, but he will make us ready. Jesus has done something to forgive, to cleanse, to announce peace. And so we're invited in and it's kind of like a vacation photo, a good photo. Um, vacation is a great opportunity and yet vacation is rarely fully wonderful and especially the more ambitious you are for vacation. So you go to another place where traveling there is complicated. The TSA, handing your liquids over, having your scissors confiscated, uh, switching flights, missing a flight, getting into a time zone and then you show up and there are the people who are now exhausted from long travel. Um, you're in a different time zone so your system is off and so your glycemic index is a little bit off in terms of your blood sugar and now everyone who had agreed that they wanted to do this is in great disagreement on what to do at that moment and so vacation turns into turning against one another and yet we still do it, we still go because there are these moments then you sit down for a meal and instantly you eat and you take a photo of that great meal and everyone feels better because you didn't hate each other, you were just hungry and then you, you go on that hike that seemed like a good idea by the influencer on Instagram, but they didn't talk about the heat and the mosquitoes. But then you get to the top of the mountain and you take that photo and you realize, boy, this was costly, but it was worth it. Two years later, you look back and you see the photo and you're not remembering the airport in Holland. You're remembering that great meal and that picture is important for us, uh, that picture of God's grace that comes instantaneously because God says, come and you will receive peace and you will have healing and you will grow. And then he sends you back into the world and you're like, I am still not good enough. I'm confused. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I don't like other Christians. I don't like non-Christians. Uh, this whole thing is hard. And then you come to church and somebody's baptized and there's a picture that in this moment God is showing you that there's forgiveness. There's cleansing, there's new life, there's peace. There is something worth striving for. And so uh, Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church were a messy church. They were having a tough time getting it together. And he writes to encourage them. 
And first he wants to warn them. So in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to give examples of unrighteousness. That's pretty, pretty severe. But he's writing to people who believe but are not living up to their beliefs. So in verse 11 he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And these things hang together, the Spirit, justification and sanctification, the name of Jesus. But our being washed as a sign is important to remind us to say, yeah, you were not good enough. You didn't earn anything, but God in his grace brought you in and he's the one who's taking care of the charges against you and your guilty conscience. He's the one who's training and fixing you. He's the one who makes you clean. And so we don't live a perfect life, but we need to struggle to remember that. And so baptism, every time we see one, is an opportunity for us to sit and marvel. <laughs> if I've been baptized, Lord, uh, that doesn't feel true of me, but, but if it is, let that picture reshape me. So. You had your experience with the box of cereal. If you're like me, six months later, a different cereal from a different store, when you pour it, you'd be thinking, I hope there are no bugs in it. And you'd be sitting there thinking as you're eating it, that slight instinct is there. And you need to tell yourself, this is, this is a different box from a different store in a different time period. I've never before had bugs in my cereal. And yet that new thing that's making me anxious, this is different. Um, being baptized into the name of Jesus says that, that, that God is making you a different person. Yeah, the old habits are there, the old instincts are there, the old patterns come up. But that fear of unworthiness is so ingrained that, that our anxiety comes into everything. So now we can no longer enjoy anything. We can no longer do good in fullness. And so that baptismal reminder that says, but I'm, I'm new, I'm different, I've been cleansed. <laughs> It was never about my moral reform or my believing sincerely enough. It was always about God's promise, his grace, and what he did through Jesus Christ to make it possible that I could put off that old self and put on the new. And that helps because the Christian life isn't easy. But life apart from Christ is a lot harder. There's so much more hope if you fully plant yourself there. So we're a defined community, a redefined community of people set apart made holy by God. We're a cleansed body. We have cleansed bodies and we're part of a cleansed body. Here's the last thing I want to talk about. We're a spiritually alive people. Baptism is, as a sign is very significant, but only if it signifies a promise, a reality. Otherwise, it's just another religious ritual. But if the gospel is real, if Jesus really came and accomplished these things, baptism is not just a religious ritual, but it's something when done by faith, uh, pictures for us uh, this forgiving, peacemaking action of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 163, that's part of the theological standards of a Presbyterian church, describes baptism as having two aspects, an outward and sensible sign, senses being we see it, we feel it, you could hear it if it's happening to you. And secondly, an inward and spiritual grace. If you go through Calvin back to Augustine, you can see throughout the church history that idea of this outward sign 
and an inward spiritual reality of God's grace. It's that inward reality that is striking Peter and his friends to say God actually worked in their midst in a profound way. Uh, so in verse 44, it says, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And that's what always accompanies these five practices we have is a spiritual reality. When we read and preach the word, it's just words unless God empowers it. But God does. He, he brings life through his word. And here he is in the preaching, the spirit falls. And in verse 46, it says, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, why is that important and why is that worth mentioning? Because in Acts 2, the sign that the Spirit had come as the new covenant fulfillment had at least two manifestations. These scattered Jews throughout the region had come for a festival and now they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in languages from their different areas and they're extolling God. The fact that the Spirit comes in this preaching to Cornelius What's being communicated in the book of Acts is it's the ripples of Pentecost. What, what, Jesus, what God did by pouring out the Spirit on his own called elect people, he's now doing to the Samaritans. And now he's doing to the nations. And so this is a defining moment. It's not every individual moment that when you believe, you're baptized with the Spirit, you speak in tongues, you extol God. That's not what this is presenting. It's presenting that God's Spirit will only uh, or I should say, you will only believe the gospel. It will only be life-giving if God's spirit is at work. And now it's available to all nations, all people. And that's where they marvel, verse 45, that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And, and that's the picture of baptism. So look, there are different ways to baptize. In the Old Testament, they would sprinkle blood on things, and so some people baptize by sprinkling uh, there are a lot of people that see how Paul talks about baptism uh, signifies our uniting with Christ. It's a union with his death and his resurrection. So some say that going underwater and coming out pictures that burial and resurrection. That's a very appropriate sign. Um, but baptism signifying the pouring out of the Spirit, that, that's the reality. It's the Spirit of God that applies the work of Jesus Christ, unites us to him. By pouring that out, that's how we're cleansed. That's how we're forgiven. That's how we're at peace. The inward reality is the work of God's spirit. But we are not God. We don't see as God sees. So we assemble and we welcome people into the church by, by declaring and remembering the promises of God and pouring water in the same way. And then so in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? That's the reality. It's Jesus Christ who um, did these things for us. You know, in the next chapter, as Peter returns and he talks to the believing Jews in Jerusalem about what happens, as he recounts the same story, he says something important in verse 16 of the next chapter. As he's telling this, he says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference. The prophets were until John, and until then there was this outward sign of an outward people, but now Jesus comes, and Jesus, if you go back to Luke's gospel, says there's a baptism with which I will be baptized with, and woe until that comes. What Jesus did is he went as the one who didn't need to be baptized because he was without sin, and he's the one who took our sins upon himself, that he became unclean, 
in order to cleanse us, that he went through a baptism of judgment and fire so that a baptism of the Spirit with signs of fire that don't consume and burn up would come among a people to make them clean, to bring peace with God, that God's plan and purposes is that while we sinned, Christ suffered, and while we didn't deserve it, God gave us new life. As we work that reality out, that spiritual reality that's pictured for us, um, I'm going to leave you with, uh, with just a question that comes from David Pallison. This is the last of four that he asks. Uh, David Pallison talks about how, how human beings have a distorted conscience. And he says that, I live before the wrong eyes. Who am I trying to impress? Who am I trying to please? I listen to the wrong voice. I stand next to the wrong standard. And I look to the wrong savior. So he's talking about the human condition where, where we're concerned about what people think. We listen to the wrong voice, so that harsh voice of your parent or your coach or your teacher is internalized. Now you think it's the voice of God, but it's not. It's your guilty conscience. I stand before the wrong standard. Everyone around me is good looking and perfect and they have whatever it is that they have. You're not a bad person because you don't have that. But I just wanna highlight this fourth one. I look to the wrong savior. It's that problem. Because if we have the wrong standard, the wrong audience, then I can get it together if I go to therapy or if I work harder and succeed, if I could accomplish and achieve, if I could prove myself. And what we're told is that it's going to lead to nothing but more discouragement, more ruin. Um, there's something that's been done for you. The voice of God says, listen, <laughs> understand what God sees. Hear his voice as he announces peace. Look at his standard that even though you fall short of it, Jesus Christ fulfilled it on your behalf. And now look to the right Savior. And this is why baptism is important, because we always get caught up thinking, if I could just get my life together, if only somebody could help me, if there was only an expert. And look, we're human beings. We need to help each other. But there is one Savior. There is only one person who can make you clean. There is only one person who brings peace with God. And we're told that that glorious person uh, took a baptism for us so that we would have a baptism that signifies a whole new life and identity. And so as you struggle, remember your baptism if you've been baptized. If you've not, remember you are invited to receive baptism. You, we are clean because God makes us clean. Uh, we are spiritually alive because God sends his spirit. We have peace because God is a God of peace. We need something that keeps that clear before us, so I would encourage you. There are other resources, but remember to keep that clear before you. Um, you are clean because of the work of Jesus Christ and the announcement of good news. Um, that means you can live differently, so this week let's go as a baptized people and work that out. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, thank you for a sign to instruct us, to teach us, uh, to welcome us into your people and to unite with a spiritual reality that many of us are working out and some of us maybe need uh, to begin or do that spiritual work to make us alive, to make us wise, to help us to see and to hear. But Lord, help us also to experience that peace 
that we would draw near to you with a clean conscience. Help us to believe by faith that despite what we think of ourselves and despite what we've done, that by the power of the gospel, we, we are clean. And may that provide rest for our souls this week and the possibility that with freedom we can live differently. Uh, Lord, do that work in our midst. Remind us of the work that you did and apply it to our lives as we, as we go back into the world today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.